Hello, everybody, and welcome to the good, the bad, the ugly, the aviation maintenance industry. Let's jump right into it. This is one of those awesome interview opportunities that I have had, and I'm speaking to Mr. Peter Johnson at Aviation Extended Podcast over there in the UK. Peter reached out to me and said, hey, I'd love to have you on the show. Would you consider it? And I said, hell yeah, I absolutely will. It took us a little back and forth to get our time zones right so we could meet up it. We eventually did that. Peter wanted to know more about the podcast, what I do and why I do it. And there just wasn't enough time in the day to get it all in there, but we got a lot of it there. It was a distinct pleasure speaking with Peter. And after this very brief sponsor break of mine, we're going to jump right into that interview coming up. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson. Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Today, our guest is Brian Wheels. Brian is an airframe and power plant mechanic who's worked across multiple aircraft types. He's worked in aviation maintenance supervisory and management positions, and he's extremely passionate about aircraft safety. He's also the host of the podcast, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, the aviation maintenance industry. Raw. So, Brian, I'm delighted to have you on. Welcome to Extended. Well, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. No, and, and where are you calling us from uh, in the world today, Brian? Well, I'm on the western part of the U.S. right now. Right. Okay. N- nice weather. Yes. Actually, we've been up in the 70s and 80s, but tomorrow we have a winter storm warning. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the UK. That's, that's, that's normal weather for us. Listen, Brian, thank you so much for joining us um, today. I want to talk a little bit about the aviation maintenance industry, particularly airliners uh, and airline maintenance. But what I want to understand a little bit about first is your background. How, how did you get involved in, in aviation and how did you come in to be an aviation maintenance mechanic? Yeah, sure thing. So I've been in aviation maintenance forever. Right now, it's been 15 years. I went to A&P school in the very early 2000s. And at that time, aviation as a whole was a very booming industry. And pretty much how I found it was after high school, I graduated, figuring out what I wanted to do. And I saw an ad on the TV about an aviation college. And this commercial was really centered around make great money, have an illustrious job, retire early, have everything you ever wanted to and make a difference in aviation. And it was a really different type of commercial than the others that try to promote aviation as a whole. So a young kid out of high school, I thought that'd be a great opportunity to uh, make money and get rich quick, or so I thought. (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) Um, What did you study? Were were there particular qualifications that you needed to be an AMP mechanic? Well, no, you just go to an A&P school, and if you go to an accredited A&P school, you don't have to have a background in aviation. And so you go there, they teach everything, all the basics that you need to know. And uh, in my day, it was a two-and-a-half-year course. Nowadays, you can get through it in you know 12 to 18 months, which is not that bad. Right, okay. And, and once you've done that, Brian, I presume you're at some sort of base level. Do you then... 
specialise in a particular aircraft? Because obviously, just by the name of AMP, you you can even go airframe type, uh, mechanical work, or or power plant. Or do you go both? Or how does that work? Well, our licensing structure here in the U.S. is actually a little bit different than our brothers up in the Canadians. In Canada, you're essentially certificated to work on different aircraft types, and you have to have uh, X amount of training on certain aircraft types in order to get that type of rating. Whereas here in the United States, you have a, a combined airframe and power plant rating. You can have an individual power plant or airframe rating. And you can have an avionics background, or you could just go into avionics singularly on its own. Both AMPs, aviation maintenance, were primarily regulated under 14 CFR Part 43 and Part 65 Subpart D, and that those FARs, those Federal Aviation Regulations, really govern the premise of what an aircraft mechanic can or can't do. But an airframe and power plant mechanic and, uh, who are certificated or our term slang is licensed, pretty much everything under the rainbow on an aircraft we can touch. So we have a, a mixed match of different federal aviation regulations that uh, govern both an AMP and aircraft maintenance. But those are primarily the ones that govern AMPs. Uh, again, is 14 CFR Part 43 then part 65, but then you have additional parts for air carriers, uh, part 121, 135, 91, and then part 145, which is the governance and standards of the facilities themselves that perform that maintenance. Wow. that That's, I mean, I know that's your day job, but that sounds very complex to me. Um, <laughs> when you qualified as an AMP mechanic, how did you then go into the airline business? How did you go into mainline maintenance work? What did you start sure. focusing on? Sure, sure. So while I was in AMP school, there was talk about, you know, the instructors actually encouraged the students to think about what they wanted to do specialized. Uh, go to GA, go to commercial, GA's uh, general aviation, go to commercial, uh, regional, uh, business jets. They encouraged the students to try and find their niche. And for me, I had a particular power plant instructor who was a 25-year-plus vet from the various classic airlines. He had been in the aviation industry long enough, but he taught our, our turbine theory classes. But he had this funny bias against reciprocating engines, or what we call piss and poppers, and that kind of rubbed off on me. And as I would talk to him, stay after class, discuss with him about his background, I quickly figured out that I did not want to work general aviation. I didn't want to work business jets. I wanted to stay with large commercial aircraft. And so I kind of knew what I wanted to do going out of AMP school. And I graduated AMP school again in the early 2000s. So I kind of had a vision where I wanted to end up. And I kind of knew where I didn't want to end up. So that first six months to a year out of AMP school, I was sending out resumes to airlines, manufacturers, MROs, everyone who was accepting a position, or even if they weren't. So for about that six month to a year period, I did actually work in GA twice. I worked for a fella at the uh, local airport. He had some warbirds that he needed a mechanic helper with. And I worked at another facility on the West Coast for a little while. Meanwhile, I mean, again, I'm putting out my resumes to all these airlines and these manufacturers. But my first real experience 
in you know touching a large commercial aircraft, I had gotten a job up in Montana and I was wor- working at an MRO that did contract maintenance for the local airlines at the terminal. They primarily worked w- with 737s, Embraer's, the occasional MD-80, a few Dash 8s, some Dash 7s. And I was paired with this elder mechanic who is pretty much close to retiring. He actually wanted to pass on his knowledge to a new guy like me, which is at that time, well, even still is, there are elder mechanics who prefer not to share their experience with younger mechanics because they feel threatened by that for whatever reason. Yeah, knowledge is power, yeah. Exactly. Knowledge is power. But this guy was a truly amazing mechanic. He was a genuine troubleshooting expert. And especially when it came to the systematic operation of 737s, uh, 757s, MD-80s, and I was amazed. So I asked him, I said, well, how do I become a shadow of you? And he said, well, it's easy. Go work for Boeing. Once you get your foot in the door and you can become as much of an expert as you do or don't want. And he said, Boeing will set you up. So I said, great idea. So I put out uh, a resume at Boeing. Probably three weeks later, I got a call from them and they said, hey, you want to work on triple sevens? And I said, okay. They literally sent me a credit card in the mail and they said, move yourself and get yourself a place to live here in Washington state. As long as you commit to us two years, you don't have to pay us back. So I knew now that I'm going to go work for Boeing. And I knew that I wanted to work on commercial aircraft, but now I also knew that I wanted to be an SME, a subject matter expert on some sort of aircraft. And I wanted to work in the line environment. The line environment is what you, when you're at the airport at the terminal, you see the guys out there on the ramp. That's the line. And I knew I wanted to, at that time, I, I really was struggling between whether it was the 737, the 757, or another type of aircraft that I wanted to specialize in and come to find out the three, seven and the five, seven was going to be my bread and butter. So I got this call from Boeing and they said, here's a credit card, pay whatever you want, get out here. And Boeing really kicked it off for me. And I started at Boeing in the triple seven program. And then I moved into the functional testing program for the four, seven, and then the three, seven programs. And that was really cool. It was really at Boeing, and this is unlike many other companies. Boeing at that time, if you wanted to know about any aircraft, past or present production, you could go to as many classes as you wanted and get as in-depth as you wanted to do. And I took advantage of that. And the funny thing is I had a girlfriend at the time, and she actually dumped me because I was spending too much time going to all these training classes instead of with her. And so really Boeing is what kicked it off for me. Right. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about working on, on the line because one of the things that actually frightens the life out of me, Brian, is what you can and can't sign off for, what you're responsible and accountable for. And and obviously we see a lot of this when there's accidents and incidents, it highlights all these things. But there's a massive amount of responsibility, isn't there, for the mechanic who, um, who, when the pilot reports a fault, comes, fixes it, addresses the issue, and then is it in effect responsible for signing that aircraft and all those people's lives off? Well, yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's not just the line environment. That's any, anywhere in the hangar. Anytime an aircraft mechanic puts a pen to paper, actually, when, when they put their hand on the aircraft and then they're 
hand to paper. They're taking on that responsibility. And about four months ago, I did a podcast called An Aircraft Mechanic's Liability and the Consequences. And I spoke to three separate aviation lawyers to really dive into the world of liability for an aircraft mechanic as far as the law says. And it all comes down to culpability. An aircraft mechanic is, in fact, responsible for the aircraft, the people who are flying on that aircraft, but also the people on the ground. An aircraft is a machine that's fighting gravity. And when you look at it that way, that you're putting something in the air, God did not make that to be in the air. We as people did. A lot of mechanics, they do not think about the legal consequences that can come about if something were to go wrong. And I talk about a few examples in that episode. So when we sign off paperwork, in this case, like you presented, we get a gate call and we have a write-up from an, an aircraft. The line environment is a little bit more different. It's probably a little bit more, there's more stress. There's more yeah, quick, was, quick, go, go. Yeah, I was going to say, a lot of pressure on on that mechanic to get that aircraft, which almost certainly is already loaded and ready to go out right. and on schedule, isn't there? Well, there is. And there are there are mechanics that wash out. They think they they have this vision of going out to the line to fix these aircraft so people can see them from within the terminal, but they don't understand that the pressures and stressors that aircraft mechanics face on the line is sometimes greater than the hangar where there's more flexibility with time. And this leads to a human factors issue in which I also have an episode about human factors. And there are mechanics who wash out. They cannot take the added pressures and stressors of working under uh, time constraints, parts constraints. And you really have to be able to think on your feet. And some will say you almost have to know the paperwork (laughs) and how to defer an aircraft better than actually wrenching on the aircraft because you can't fix everything. And that's why we have MELs, minimum equipment lists. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So if you're a a line mechanic and you get that call, what is the scope of things that you'd be responsible of for trying to address them, Brian? Because you can't be everything to everybody, you know, from an electronics engineer and something maybe in the cockpit through to something in the power plant. How, How does that work? Have you got a a generalist knowledge to do only so much or go as far as a particular specification? How does that work? That's a great question. It comes with experience. Back in my day, when I started in aviation, you could put as much resumes out to the line to work in the line environment. Many airlines, they would not let a brand new mechanic out of AMP school go to the line because they didn't know the aircraft. And they would send a lot of these mechanics to the hangar for two to three years, maybe even more. And it was up to that manager or that supervisor to allow that mechanic when they made a transfer request to say, okay, you do or don't have enough experience, in my opinion, to go to the line. So be able to determine exactly what is wrong with the aircraft. That partially comes with experience, but that's why we also file the tech pups, the aircraft maintenance manuals, the AMMs. And that's a place where the feds, the FAA, do ding mechanics on because, and this stems into another human factor issue, you can get so complacent doing the same thing over and over. It's like, okay, I got a gate call. I've had this a hundred other times. I know exactly what to do with the aircraft. And you don't know if the paperwork, the, the tech pubs have been updated, if there's been a change, but you go ahead and you're so complacent doing that same fix over and over that you don't review the paperwork. And I tell new guys this all the time, even me, as much as I know a lot of these aircraft, there are things that I 
don't know, or there's things that I, I still have to double check in the tech pub. So yeah, you get the discrepancy yeah. and you arrive to the aircraft. The flight crew is going to say, okay, the discrepancies A, B, C, and D occurred. And you're going to go to a fault isolation manual or maybe, you know, the, the AMM or the wire diagram, the system schematic diagram. You're going to go and find either those fault codes or those errors that align with a particular problem. Really, to sum it up, it, to know what to do and how to do it comes with experience and also always following the documentation. Right. And, and, and are there different grades of mechanic to, to, to give you that permission to sign off particular er elements or to be on a line? Are there different grades of, of mechanic? There's not. On the line, oh, in the line, okay. and, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, sh that sort of surprises me, actually. There's GenFam, General Familiarization Training, that mechanics should go to. Now, I emphasize the should before they go either to the hangar or to the line, whenever they should, you know, going to touch an aircraft. But that's not always the case, especially post-COVID. A lot of airlines are hiring these mechanics straight out of A&P school and not sending them to GenFam for six or eight months. But they're letting them out there to touch the aircraft. And the reason why they do this because there used to be, and it's not so much anymore, there used to be a problem with contractors, people who, who work on contracts, okay, contract maintenance. They would just show up for the GenFam training. And as soon as they got the 40, you know, 80, 120 hour class, then they would say, oh, I don't want to work for you guys anymore. And they would leave. So airlines don't want to pay for someone to sit in the seat if they think they're not going to stick around or they're just sticking around just for that GenFam. But I got a little off track there. Understood, understood. But there's no in-writing requirement per the FARS that says that outside of having an A&P certification, that you have to know this, this, or that to touch an aircraft. Um, a lot of that is left up to that company who that person works for. But on the line, when you're signing something off as rectified, you're actually signing the continuous airworthiness of that aircraft. But on the line, that's what each of us individually are doing. Yeah. And um, before we go on to talk about um, some of your views and, and the podcast and the blog then, Brian, just one question that that sort of highlighted to me is how much of that, because you talk a lot about paperwork there, and we, we know about the paperless cockpit and the use of iPads and technology and, and stuff like that. How much of that has washed through to the maintenance environment. You know, do you go into the, the cockpit when you get called with an iPad and, you know, follow those those process chains that you mentioned earlier, the wire diagram or, or, or something like that? Or, or is it a big manual book? Well, it used to be. It, it, I would say about not, well, <laughs> all of them. At one point, every air carrier, airline aviation company had a log book. My last job, we actually had electronic both electronic logbooks and electronic tablets for iPads for maintenance to bring with them. And you just do the paperwork electronically. Now, what I prefer is to stick with paper books. What I have found with the companies that I have worked for who use uh, iPads or a tablet, whenever they have electronic logbook uh, set up, there's more downtime with trying to get these devices to work properly than to actually just Write it, on, write it on a piece of paper yeah. and you'll yeah. find a lot of delays. That tablet that your company, oh, just so much wants you to use because it's so quick, the thing doesn't work. Where does that go? Does it go back to the office and stay on the ground or does it go with the aircraft itself? In that example, that scenario, 
Uh, the flight crew, they have their own version of the tablet. They have their electronic logbook. And yeah. when I sign off the maintenance, it goes into a, sev- a central server. And that also links up with the electronic flight book on the aircraft, which is separate from the maintenance side of the input of information. And then the other side goes to a stored server somewhere in the IT department. Right. Okay. I'll tell you why I asked the question, Brian, because I was just thinking when there's an incident or an accident, how is that record protected? That's why I was asking it. But that makes that makes a lot of sense. I understand. Um, so l- let me ask you, 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 you've had this career, you know, you love what you do. I think I can hear that you've got a passion about the work you do. Um, you, you produce a podcast and, and a blog that some would say might be a bit contentious. I've really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the listen. Why did you start the podcast? What, what was the, the inspiration, the drive that made you press that sure. switch and say, hey, <laughs> I need to start talking about this? Well, it didn't come to me right away. I was already about three, maybe actually four, four and a half years in aviation as a mechanic, just enjoying myself and what I was doing. But the day that this thought came to me, I was working at a MRO in Tucson, Arizona. I worked a night shift and I was given a task to remove a fuel boost pump from an MD-80 that was outside and it was in process of being scrapped. I was told to remove this wing boost pump. And this company's policy was whenever you remove a part from an aircraft, another aircraft, okay, it doesn't have to be just one that's being scrapped. The policy was you give it to the inspector, the inspector looks it over, and then they determine if they sent, sent it off to the, its manufacturer to be further inspected and overhauled. So that's what I did. I removed this fuel boost pump. I gave it to the inspector. I went back to the lead and I said, hey, I'm done with the job. He says, what do you mean you're done with the job? You finished up that MD-80 that's in the hangar. No, I didn't. I, I went out. My, the task card said, go and remove a fuel boost pump from the one that they're going to scrap. And I did that. But our policy says we give it to the inspector. That's what I did. He said, this lead says, no. He says, you don't understand. We didn't want you to give that to the inspector. We wanted you to put that boost pump right into that MD-80 that's still in the hangar that we Ooh. have to get out. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, that's not our policy. He says, well, okay, come with me. So he literally takes me by the hand <laughs> and he walks me over to the, uh, the building where the supervisor was. And on night shift with this particular supervisor, there was something wrong with him. It was rumored that he was mixing and Red Bull on his brakes because this guy was, I mean, he was a completely different person. Five minutes to five minutes. Every five minutes, he was yeah. a different person. So the lead brings me over to this supervisor and he says, hey, Brian here, he's failing to follow instructions. And I kind of look at him. So what are you talking about? Failing? I did exactly what our company policy says to do. And the supervisor says, well, how about you not get yourself fired today? Go and get that boost pump. I don't care if it came out of any other plane, but we need to get that one in the hangar on its way and install that fuel boost pump in it. And uh, I said, no, I don't feel that's right. He says, okay. So he walks me to my box and he says, you're fired. I said, all right. So I'm packing all my tools up and uh, (laughs) he's walking me back to the parking lot. I'm rolling my box. And the director of maintenance just so happens to be coming in the opposite direction. Now, the director of maintenance was the one who hired me. 
because I had already 737 experience. So it's the same guy that hired me, but he sees me walking with rolling my toolbox out accompanied by the supervisor. He said, hey, what's going on? Before I even get a word out, supervisor says, oh, yeah, he's not following direction. He's being insubordinate. I look at him. I said, okay, that's not what happened. And uh, the DM, he says, well, tell me what happened. So I told him I was given a task to remove a fuel boost pump from the MD-80 that's being scrapped. And per our policy, I'm to give it to the inspector. But instead, they wanted me to not do that, forego that policy and put it in this MD-80. The director of maintenance says, okay, look, he says, I don't want to lose you. He says, I'll tell you what we'll do. How about you go install that fuel boost pump in that plane? Then give me the paperwork. I'll sign it off as if I did it. And right then and there, I said, nope. I said, please continue firing me. I'm done. And this director of maintenance, he fired He's begging and pleading, following me all the way out to the parking lot. I'm loading my truck up. He said, please don't do this. Don't do this. I'm like, no, what you told me to do was illegal maintenance. I'm not going to be a part of it. And it was that drive home to my apartment. The fleeting thought came in my mind because podcasts at that time, they weren't a thing. They were more of a fad than anything. I thought, man, I could just do a podcast about what just happened today. But fortunately, And as a side note, I already had a job lined up that I was going to go to. So I was going to quit this company. But the first time, and it took four years, almost four and a half years to get there, that the thought of a podcast came into my head. Fast forward to about 2018 when I got married. Uh, Now, at that point, I've been in aviation for a long time. And I was frustrated with the shenanigans, and I call them shenanigans, the shadiness in the industry. And my wife said, hey, you remember when you told me years ago that you want to do a podcast and now podcasts are popular? How about you just do it? Get this off your chest. And I said, nah, I don't want to do that. You know, who's going to listen to what I have to say? But then COVID started. We fast forward a couple of years and aviation got hit very bad. I was, I was let go right along with other mechanics. I was still frustrated. And my wife says, okay, you have this time off and we're going to have a baby. We're going to, we're expecting our first baby. Wow. Congratulations. And, uh, <laughs> thank you. It's, it's, it's quite interesting being a parent, but we have yeah. all this time off. And she said, how about you just do this podcast, get what's on your chest off. So I did, I started recording directly into my phone on my anchor app and yeah. I recorded some episodes on my phone and I felt so good about it. It's like, okay, well I'm telling people what it's not only what it's like to be a mechanic, but also what's actually going on in the industry. That's, I suppose, what grabs me from the content. And although the term controversial is often used, Brian, it's not controversial what you're saying. It's it's pretty straight. Something's not right. Rules or regulations, and there's a lot of them, look like they're being bent or broken. Uh, And what, what you appear to be doing to me is just giving an inside picture to that. I, I read the article about you on Colleen Pettit's blog. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Colleen's passionate about uh, airline safety, um, and I've read much of her content about the lack of whistleblowing in the industry. There seems right. to be, a, a, and again, I can only assume and make these statements from what I'm hearing and what I'm reading, but the culture in the business and again i can only speak for a for, for american because that's where you know we're getting this feedback from right. just doesn't feel right it's not right and 
as aviation has evolved, as these large airlines, even aviation companies, as they've evolved, they've figured out how to mislead the public. Because the perception, you go on any social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, you know, Instagram, all these different airlines and aviation companies, they have this positive image out there that although you're going to have to pay us 1200 bucks to go one way, you're still going to be safe in doing so. Although you're only going to have 18 inches to sit, you're still safe in doing so. But what people don't know is that these companies have found out ways to, to defraud the public. They, many airlines, and I've met these groups, these individuals, they'll hire people whose background is psychology. And they have dedicated groups, departments of people whose job it is to scour the web, to scour anything they can to find negative, anything negative about that company and to put a positive spin on it. And these people are getting paid hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And it's not just the airlines who are doing this. It's the FAA. The Federal Aviation Administration, their biggest excuse is we cannot promote and regulate aviation at the same time. Our hands are tied. They always say that. But my view on it is the FAA's job is not to promote business. Their job is to regulate. Leave it up to those individual companies, businesses to promote yeah. themselves because that's business. You either yeah. feast or famish in business. Yeah. But then you have the, the governing entity of aviation. They're saying that you have these aviation companies who are defrauding or, or misconceiving the public on what's really happening. But then you have the Department of Transportation, which I've always liked the way the Department of Transportation here in the U.S. handles things. They're like the president of everything transportation related. It doesn't have to be just aviation. And they have admonished the FAA and airlines over and over and over again. Now, Brian, um, I want to come back to safety because I think it's just such a, a an important topic that you talk about. But the podcast isn't just about, and I'm using big air quotes here, whistleblowing type investigations that, that you've done. Um, you also use your, your, your skills and expertise to analyze events, um, which right. I do find quite interesting because a lot of the content that's out there that I listen to about accidents and incidents doesn't come from people with the specialist knowledge to really right. understand causation, what may have uh, have led to this. So I've been really fascinated by by some of your discussions. Um, we all saw the the DHL DHL seven five seven recently run off the 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 side of, of a runway. You talked about that. I thought that was really fascinating, and of course. The elephant in the room has been the Boeing 737 MAX. And yep. I just don't get that. I don't get that at all. And if anyone's listening to the program now and knows your background, they won't get it either because you're steeped in, you know, in knowledge and experience of that. Mm -hmm. So I've been really intrigued to see your approach and your comments about some of those incidents because it comes from a very different perspective so let's not let the listeners think that it's it's just whistleblowing you do look at lots of areas of the industry and try to bring your experience as a uh, as a qualified amp mechanic to those incidents well and i do then that has been actually a 
subject of complaint from some of my listeners is that I, for a lack of better wording, branched out besides just talking about shadiness and shenanigans within aviation maintenance. Um, some people actually don't like that I talk about other things. I talk about just daily AMP struggles. I talk about uh, certain different topics in aviation. One of them happens to be, I do give my two cents only when asked, though, really by people. So what do you think like the DHL 5-7 incident? Explain a little bit about your thought process on that. Because again, um, the way you explained it was from your own perspective. And it was a different different set of glasses we were looking at that incident through. What's your feel? How you explained that and your thought process? It's funny because people will talk about a aircraft incident or crash and they automatically go to, well, if it's a Boeing aircraft, uh, it must be MCAS. <laughs> or if it's a, you know, this yeah. DHL 5-7, well, it must be Boeing. And somehow that yeah. 5-7 has MCAS on it. The way that I approach these is I've always been kind of um, struggle with it because I hate theorizing to and have someone twisted into speculation. I always like to wait for the actual facts. Like when Transair, when Transair had their 3-7 go down last year, and fortunately the crew survived, people were saying, well, what happened, Brian? What happened? And I was very hesitant on giving my two cents because I don't have the facts of what happened. I wasn't there. Unlike some yeah. of the aircraft incidents that I have been a part of, I was right there. I could tell you what I think because I could see, smell, and touch the aircraft. But I have kind of gotten to that point where, okay, well, the DHL 5-7, you know, there was really good videos. There was really good photographs of it. And I just got to say this, who in the hell puts a ditch right next to a runway? <laughs> I didn't I, think of that, but yeah. Yeah. Right, what, what, what was that really there for? Well, fortunately, though, the ARF department was right there. But when I was studying the, the videos and pictures of this 5-7, you can see certain... Uh, you can see the way that the control services and the secondary control services were moving. You can tell a little bit by the the sound, whether there was a thrust reverser and operative, which I believe there was. Obviously, you can see the landing gear was down when the aircraft had actually landed. I could see the action of the anti-brake system taking effect, although... And obviously, I meant the anti-skid system. I'm going to eventually realize that I made a mistake in what I had just said. Now, before you go on and troll me, I meant the anti-skid system on the aircraft. Now back to the program. There was people saying, well, I, all I see is smoke. Well, if you look real closely, you can see the anti-lock brakes, or anti-skid, I'm calling it anti-lock. It's actually called anti-skid. You could see it pulsating. And so I just give my perspective based upon what we know from the recordings from ATC, what I know from watching the videos, the pictures. But even then, I'm always, I make it a point to caution people. It might not be what I said. It could be that we still have to wait for the news. And China Eastern, that's another one. That's something that is really just driven by bias. It's driven by propaganda yeah. more than anything else. But I just kind of give my perspective based on what we, what I can see and what we know for sure. But I do not like speculating. It could have been whatever. Because then if it's not, people can come back and say, well, Brian, you misled us. And that's not what I'm about is misleading people. Okay. You know, that's, inter that's interesting. That's an interesting summary. So uh, thanks for that. Just on that, 
China 737 and certainly the news that's now starting to appear makes us think it may have been human intervention but uh, let's wait wait and see bless all the souls who who, who lost their lives in it so brian what, what is it that let, and this is my words and no one else why are the authorities not liking what you're saying and uh, you know and and the work that you do people like carlene do why is there not a culture of of openness in in the industry i work in in the in the uk which is a it's a service business. We use heavy plant, heavy equipment. We've got not only whistleblowing opportunities, but we've got the responsibility as individuals to say stop. And if anybody on that location feels unsafe, feels there's an issue, they're allowed to say stop and the business has to stop and give them credence, listen, right. investigate and so forth. Now, I understand the airline industry can't quite work in in that way but why does there appear to be this culture that people don't feel safe to view their 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 fears their worries their concerns about particular practices and processes in the industry sure another very good uh series of questions see the big thing with aviation it is a multi 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 billion dollar industry and the executives that work at these large airlines, and even aviation companies, they are getting paid hundreds of millions of dollars in both accumulative pay and bonuses. And they're going to lose it. The reason why there are airlines and folks and companies that don't like what I say is because they stand to lose money. Money drives aviation. Money trumps safety. And, and that, it is just that simple. And there are people that would disagree this. Well, that can't be possible. They can't. It's not possible that they don't think of safety. Well, it is because I've sat in the very same room with these executives and I have seen them laugh and just slough off the, the possibility of an incident or accident. They say things like, well, that's why we got insurance or that's why we have money set aside. And that's absolutely what they do. They have billions of dollars set aside that is not touched by anyone, but it's used as payout money to shut up families, the families of victims. And it's an egregious act. When someone like me comes around and says, okay, wait, 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 let me, let me tell you what really goes on. Let me really tell you about the retaliation, the culture, the toxic atmosphere of these companies. They stand to lose money. Now, I'm a small time podcaster. There's, there's no way that me on my own is going to enact any real change. But I provide the information to the public so that the public at large and in mass can go to these government entities, can go to their congressmen, their senators. They can reach out to these companies or they can choose not to fly anymore. And believe it or not, there is a magic number. It, well, there's a magical range in which an airline will see that their income, their profit is, is no more, and they will start looking into complaints from people. And that number is around 17 to $20 million loss in a quarterly fiscal year. All right, so I'm going to stop here real quick and explain this for you guys. What I mean by this magical number, this magical range, it's going to mislead some people, so I want to clarify. 
in my experience and from what I've been told by other people who I know who are an upper echelon level of management, usually this number is actually 15 to 20 million dollar range in which the executives, the bean counters start seeing a real steep decrease in the amount of money that this airline, this aviation company is profiting from. And at that point, they start looking for solutions. Why is this occurring? And they tend to now look at the customer complaints. How many customer complaints do they have? What have people been complaining about? They get all these different departments together to discuss, hey, we have experienced a significant loss this quarter. Uh, Sometimes it is a fiscal year, but usually it's per the quarter. And they start discussing amongst themselves, what can we do? What have we done to drive the number of people flying with us down? And that number, again, is around that 15 to $20 million loss mark. Because you got to remember, these airlines are making billions of dollars. They're making a lot of money. So a couple million dollars for an airline is not going to hurt them. It has to be a very drastic type of number. And that, again, from what I've experienced and from what others have told me, is between that 15 to $20 million range. So that is what I meant by the comment that I made when I was speaking to Peter, was there is a magical number or a range of numbers in which an airline is going to start looking at customer complaints as maybe a reason why they have lost customers while they are not making a lot of money. Money is very important to airlines. That is the driving factor behind airlines. They want to make money. It is greed. Greed comes at the cost of safety. They view it as acceptable. So that's what I meant by this comment. Now back to the program. Um, Once they see that they're having such a huge loss, they then start diving into customer complaints and they very rarely look at a customer's complaint as it comes in. It just goes into a folder. It goes into a special file. But when they start seeing that magic number, again, that's between 17 and $20 million start to hit them negatively. And you'll see these companies coming out on social media primarily saying, okay, well, now we're going to make this change. We're going to make this change. And the FAA, they do the same thing. You know, they fired a lot of people at the FAA just to get another knucklehead in there who who doesn't really care. So I'm a threat to these companies because they stand to lose money because I'm talking to people so they can become educated and make that decision. Because I never tell people you should or you shouldn't fly, but you need to know that there is, it's always rolling the dice. It's not 100% safe. And I leave it up to those people with that information to decide on their own whether they're going to stop flying or they're going to start driving instead. Because when it comes down to it, I'm not, again, as an individual going to make a change. It's going to need to be hundreds of thousands of people making that change in order to get these companies stop doing what they're doing. Fascinating stuff, Brian. If you want to hear more about that approach, if you want to hear more about some of the experiences, Brian reports on talks about and investigates then you need to go over and look up the podcast brian it's been a fascinating discussion where where can we find you 
online where can we find the blog and the podcast sure it's aviationmxtruth.com one word aviationmxtruth.com that'll bring you to the website you can listen to the podcast and all the most popular podcasting setups you know apple spotify iHeartRadio, amazon i'm there and all the information is on the website aviationmxtruth.com and you'll also find me on facebook twitter and instagram right well we will put uh, links to all of those in the show notes fascinating discussion brian thanks very much this interview was awesome and i really appreciate mr peter johnson and taking time out of his day and speaking with me this was an excellent opportunity i enjoyed it and i hope peter enjoyed it as much as i did check out peter's podcast at aviation extended links are in the description you can listen to them on all the popular podcast sources out there i highly recommend their podcast again you can find them at aviation extended their show link is in a description if you have any questions thoughts concerns or if you want to share your stories live on the podcast reach out to me at apmechanicpodcast at aol.com you can also find me on twitter at good bad ugly underscore amp you can also find me on facebook at good bad ugly ap and remember new podcast second wednesday of each month the great podcast website is also up check it out at aviationmxtruthoneword.com and until next time everybody thanks again for tuning in we'll talk to you later take care and be safe we'll see you